Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and I think this must be episode 178, where I had a chat with a guy called Steve Francis. He's a drummer in a band called Bullet Belt. Now, this guy's all about heavy metal, uh, death metal, all kinds of metal. Uh, he is a metal junkie. Um, his other passions, which, you know, they, they line up, are um, tattoos and uh, horror, you know, comic books, skateboarding, um, horror films. So we talk about all of this sort of stuff. He's a collector of uh, action figures, toys, metal records. Um, you know, I went to his house and 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 checked all of this stuff out and talked to him, and it was it was kind of like being in a in an adult playroom for um, people that are interested in that sort of stuff. I'm I'm a bit of a fair weather metal fan. I I do love a bit of heavy metal, but I'm not um, a devotee. So I'm. Um, I'm just into the garden variety stuff myself, I think, in the most case. But I, I do like Bullet Belt. They're a band that have been around for about 10 years, and their big sort of claim to fame really is creating the music for um, a really cool uh, local horror film from a couple of years ago, or comedy horror film called Deathgasm. So uh, we just talked through the kind of the, the career of Bullet Belt and also... Um, Steve's time in the Wellington metal scene. I mean, he's been around in Wellington since the late 80s, early 90s, and so he talks about seeing the very early shows of, you know, bands like Head Like a Hole and She Hard when they kind of were coming up and then ruling the roost here. Um, so it's a bit of a fan perspective. And, uh, yeah, I just, you know, he's a, a passionate guy. He's a swim coach, uh, a family man. So all of that stuff comes into the conversation as well. And, uh, uh, you know, I knew Steve a little bit already, but um, getting to have this conversation with him, I, I really loved, and I, I think you will too. So um, my thanks, as always, to Tea Leaf Tea, La Pity Chocolat, and Yeasty Boys. And uh, this is a conversation with metal fan, metal drummer, uh, occasional gig promoter. Uh, and one of the creative forces behind Bullet Belt. This is me talking with Steve Francis. Bullet Belt is your band that has been the last decade of your life. Yep. I want to. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about all sorts of things. But um, I want to start by going way back. So let's. Let, when did you get hooked on? I mean, you, I'm in your house, and I've seen some of your collection, and you're a collector of many things, which we'll talk about too. Um, a pop culture junkie, a metal junkie. When did you get bitten by that bug? Was it from childhood? Uh, yeah, I guess it started um, probably even uh, when I was five or six. Um, do you remember the um, the stories they used to have on the radio on Sunday mm. morning? Did you ever Dick listen Weir. to those? Dick Weir and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. becoming kind of obsessed with that and then yeah. it moved on to... The cartoons, it was like Adamant yeah, 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 and yeah. all that classic yep. stuff. And I kind of was really kind of always been into that kind of stuff. And I got hooked on that. And then um, luckily I had two older brothers. So mm, mm. my kind of musical, um, my musical education, although I was still getting subjected to Duran Duran and, and whatnot, mm. which good band. Yeah, yeah. I had older brothers um, who had collections varied from Led Zeppelin, um, Ultravox, Neil Young. Um, my my next brother up was more into kind of punk stuff. So he had like Blitz, mm, mm, Clash, mm. kind of UK punk stuff. So, and we all shared a room, three of us in a, right. in a room at Masterton. Yeah, yeah. And my brother, my oldest brother Tony, had a um, a, a kick-ass um, ghetto blaster, and he had a big cassette collection and and a reasonable size vinyl collection. So, um, and we also had a turntable down in the 
down in the lounge, um, which I, I used a lot. So my, I guess my, my youth involved um, listening to music continually. Like I would either be watching things like the Six Million Dollar Man mm. or um, or uh, the Dukes of Hazard, mm. or I'd be listening to things like Queen and mm. the Cult and things like this. And that was, um, I guess, I was lucky that I had older brothers that kind of mm. steered me into this direction. And and uh, I guess. I look back, and the two things that really got me obsessed with heavy metal and um, I guess the horror kind of stuff, that I'm, mm. two, two moments, I remember walking into my brother's room and I heard this sound and I didn't even know if it was guitar. And my brother had bought Van Halen One Home on cassette Mm-mm. and he put it on and running with the devil first and, and then, of course, eruption. Mm. And I just remember walking into my brother's room and I was just transfixed. I was just, I'd never heard anything like it. I remember just... Just being amazed and like, holy shit, is that mm. a guitar solo? And that was my really first obsession was that Van Halen Wayne cassette, and I just thrashed it. And um, and I guess the other the other moment, I remember my parents were away for a weekend, and and it was the days of good old um, VHSs, and mm. uh, my brother got a whole bunch of VHSs out. I was probably ten. My my oldest brother was about fifteen, and he got Evil Dead out. And, um, I mean, kids now would probably watch Evil Dead and think it was funny, mm, you know. Mm, mm. But the, what year was that? Probably 1981, 1982. And I, I remember walking in on it. And they mm, were all sitting in the mm. lounge, curtains closed, and Evil Dead was on. And it was a scene where, um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, yeah. but, um, but the, um, the, um, What's her name? Henrietta is trying to get up from under the cellar and Ash jumps on the cellar door and it goes onto her mm-hmm. head mm-hmm. and her eyeball goes flying out. I remember walking in right on that scene and this girl screaming and the eyeball goes into her mouth. Mm. And and that to me was just had such a big impact seeing that. It's amazing that stuff, <laughs> eh? It just, you know, I, I had my... I got obsessed with horror films as a teenager because when I was really young, I watched this, I don't know if you know this, absolute trashy B-grade thing called Alligator. It's a com- comedy horror from ni- 1980. Is that the one down the toilet? Yeah, 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 yep. yeah. And so you watch it now, you just laugh at it. It's so stupid. But I watched it like I was too young to see it. So it actually affected me and I was quite freaked out by it. I was maybe five or six. Yeah. And so in my mind, a couple of years on, I just decided I was going to cure myself of being scared of things like that. So I just overdosed on horror films I got hooked on it but that's so that's become like a really important film in my life you know awesome. I've gone back and watched it and yeah yeah it's amazing you know yeah. but I can remember the fear I had like I went home from my auntie and uncle's house and I for months I'd walk past and I'd put the toilet seat down put the lid down shut the door I was worried that something was going to come up through the loo yeah absolutely illogical <laughs> absolutely absurd but that no, t- but all. that took me to you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre and yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street series and The Howling and all of that stuff. Yeah, and the yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is actually really interesting because um, that was a big one for me mm, too. Mm. And there's actually not a lot of gore in it. No, There's actually no. very little. That was one of the first movies with, I guess, the sheer terror yeah. of the chase. Yes. You know, the yes. scene where she's running through the house and Leatherface mm. is chasing her and all that kind of stuff. The sound was, design too, eh? Yeah. You know, yeah. Incredible Amazing. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that filters through to, like, I've just been talking about with Oscar things like um, Jaws and how, you know, the Jaws movie was obviously, I mean, that's a little bit before my time when it came out. But again, seeing that as a kid, it was so impactful. And there's 
you know, they couldn't get the shark working. Yeah. <laughs> and there's not actually that much shark in it. No. But there's this amazing music and there's this incredible camera work and just the concept for and, the time. And just, the, the, just that the idea. Yeah, the, exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do a lot of sea swimming and I, I go out around the, just in Freiburg, out around the lighthouse in the harbour there. Mm. And I'm out there swimming on my own sometimes and I start getting illogical thoughts. Mm. Like, mm. fuck, what's below me, you know? Mm, mm. And it probably stems back from watching Jaws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what, I mean, so apart from this discovery of Van Halen and horror films and having older brothers, what was going on for you growing up in Masterton? What was happening? What was the family doing? Why were uh, you there and how long were you there? I, I, I was in Masterton. I, I was born in Masterton. I lived there till I was about 17 or 18, I think. So I just lived the, um, you know, I guess a typical Marston life, played rugby in the winter and and so on. But um, the group of friends I started hanging out with, I guess, were, I mean, I was reasonably sporty and I'm still mm. pretty sporty, um, but I kind of never gra- uh, never graviated towards the um, the jocks or the mm. sport because mm. I was more kind of hanging out with the kids at school who were, who were kind of wearing trench coats and, mm, mm, you know, mm, or, or you remember the classic army band? Yeah, 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 had? yeah. So more, yeah. more hanging out with that mob and, and um, I mean, I, I swam, so that was my kind of main sport. So I was pretty fit and I was c- pretty good at sport, but I, I was never really interested in the f- kind of first 15 kind of scene mm. or crowd. So I was more off with those guys. Mm. I never, I, it took, I didn't start partying until quite late. So because I was quite sporty, I was hanging out with people who were partying, but I never actually partied myself. So I was more um, more um, hanging out with them and we more had in common like music and, mm. and movies and these mm. kinds of things. So um, yeah, strange place to grow up in. Um, it's not a bad little town now. No, well, I was just thinking because you know you're 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 a little bit older than me, and so I was thinking you know I I probably first visited Masterton when I was I don't know eleven or twelve or something like that, and then you know I didn't really form any connection with it. But I've been back a few times in the last few years, and obviously driving through it because I'm from Hawkes Bay, so yeah. driving through it. But I I remember staying there on a school trip, and I couldn't. It was just back then. It was just a small little farming town. Yeah. With. We had um, we had two record stores. Right. So that was really there was two record stores and there was um, one really good VHS shop. Mm, mm. So the two record stores there was Centerpoint Records. Mm. Do you remember the big tower in the middle of the yeah, town? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's knocked down now. Yeah, but that yeah, was Centerpoint yeah. Records, and that was um, that was a big part of my musical education. Mm. And um, you know, people listening out who are younger than us, they wouldn't understand yeah, about yeah, having yeah. to actually go yeah. to a music store to yeah, get your yeah. music, yeah, unsighted. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Did I, you learn from the people in the shop? Was there there, there was a guy there called was Wayne, yeah. Wayne who was very useful. <laughs> yeah. I actually ended up working there for yeah. a wee while, which yeah. was a great little job. But um, and there was a um, there was an actual uh, an importer over in Wellington called J Rem. Mm, mm. And they started, Moss, yeah. yep. And they started bringing in a lot of a lot of metal stuff in the mm. late eighties and nineties. Mm. And um, Wayne used to come over to Wellington once a month and go to the J Rem mm. um, warehouse. Mm. And once I started working for him, I used to come over with him too. And that was, this was kind of the, um, I guess the the explosion of thrash metal and the kind of start of death metal. And um, J Rem were getting um, Roadrunner, which was a big metal mm. label, and mm. they were getting Nuclear Blast. And this stuff was really hard to get before then. So um, all of a sudden, because I was working in the Centerpoint Records, we started getting this really great supply of, of metal albums coming through the store. So it kind of spread and it became this quite 
good little metal scene mm. in Masterton mm. because the stuff was all of a sudden accessible. And, and because it was accessible, some bands started popping up, which was really exciting. There was maybe four or five little metal bands who'd kind of play on a Saturday night at a house party or whatever around Masterton. Mm. So that was really, I guess, my late, late teens was kind of really delving into that and... Um, yeah, just kind of... So when does it extend over for you to any sort of interest in playing an instrument? Uh, I always had interest in playing. I, um, I would want to be David Lee Roth one day, and then I'd want to mm. be Eddie Van Halen the next day, and I, I can't really sing. I tried guitar. I've got tiny little stubby fingers, so I wasn't much use at guitar. So I picked up a drum set um, probably in my late teens, and, a, and me and some schoolmates formed our first band, which was called Carnage, mm. with a K. Mm-hmm. And um, it started thrash metal, but then, um, like I said, the kind of death metal explosion was happening kind of 88, 89, and, and we kind of changed styles and, and started to kind of morph into a um, death metal band. And we had, a, we had various bands. Um, the good thing about living in a small town is it's really easy to get rehearsal space. Mm, mm. Made, there was empty garages. or I mean, we had a really great... Um, really great rehearsal space at like an old car dealership and we basically had the whole thing and it wasn't just rehearsal space it was party time mm, mm. and we'd have mates around there you know we ended up getting kicked out of pretty much every band room we had after about a year of <laughs> <laughs> just being yeah. small town little yeah. scumbags yeah but that was the beauty there was um it was always always um good good rehearsal space and um so yeah it's just i guess the same as as any kind of school band pretty pretty rubbish to start with Playing skills weren't great, but mm. the attitude was certainly there. Yeah, A for enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So you moved to Wellington from there, or...? Yeah, I was kind of... Um, all my friends started kind of leaving school and heading over here, and um, I kind of followed them over, and we ended up getting a flat in um, Cuba Street. Do you remember the, there used to be the butcher in Cuba Street? Mm, mm, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I do, but I think I remember it more from trips down here before I lived here, and yeah. Yeah. It was actually right above a, there was a little music store, uh, I can't remember what it was called, we were right above a record store, and above a butcher, and it was, um, it was a pretty well-known party house, and we had these giant Charles Manson curtains we made, so lots of prints of the Charles Manson mm. face on these curtains, and we, um, so we spent about two or three years, not, no, no one was working, we'd just kind of sleep until midday, mm. get up, um, delve into... Whatever we were doing, <laughs> try and scrounge up enough money to get some booze, mm. a drink all night, and play music all night. And, and once all the shops closed down, we'd just rehearse and play. And mm. we had various different lineups of bands, and and it was a really interesting scene coming over that kind of um, early '90s because it was when um, Head Like a Hole and She Had Head Like a Hole Smart. Do you yeah, remember Smart? Yeah, you were. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was like there was actually an explosion of really cool mm. bands. I I remember lining up. To see um, Head Like a Hole and Shehard, it was at um, Rocky's, which what is San Fran now, mm-hmm. and literally lining up right down the street to, um, is it Guzney or Vivian, mm. the one down that way? Guzney. Guzney. I was lined up on that corner mm. to get in. That's how that's uh, how big the hype was for. Yeah, so because I, I arrived in Wellington in '95, so I've been here ever since then, and so I remember, like in my final years of school, we knew about <clears throat> the early cassette tape EPs that um, she had and Head Like a Hole were doing and they'd, they had some music videos and so knew about them and it was exciting to move to the city where these bands were 
but you were here when they formed, so that, I, I, that's of interest to me because yeah, you know it, it was a really exciting time. Mm. I mean, I didn't see the, um, see the first year gigs when they played like the Claret and so on, but mm. it was kind of just when they were just about to put Devolve out. Is when mm. I really kind of started to go and see them, and um, I mean they were pulling, you know, four or five hundred people, mm. which is um, and and I do these. That, um, so they were managed, of course, by Gerald Dwight, mm, and mm. he was a really smart guy. He really mm. thought outside the box, and he would hold all these great shows. He would find an empty warehouse somewhere around Wellington mm. and form that and make that into a venue for the night. And I saw some great double headers with Head Like a Hole and um, She Harder to Be Bands. There was a band called Conventional Toasters. I don't know if you remember those guys. No. Supported and um, just heaps of really cool, interesting kind of um, support bands, all doing kind of weird. It wasn't. I mean, Shehard, even at that stage, were trying to steer themselves away from being known as a metal band, mm. even though, to me, they were a, devolved to metal. Yeah, year, yeah, right? totally. But even, I think even but at that, that stage, they were kind of trying to move away that from... That influence of things like Killing Joke and that, right? Like, yeah. that kind of... It's heavy music, but it's more, more in the post-punk thing than metal, but it does speak to metal fans and... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember jumping on a bus one time... Would have been early 90s, and I sat next to John Tugard, and I was heading out to Island Bay where I lived. I was like, hey, man, I kind of knew him. Mm. I was like, hey, how you doing? And I was total metalhead, like, slayer, mm. you know, whatever. And I probably had some, you know, heavy metal T-shirt on. And I sat to him, I was like, oh, what have you been listening to? He's like, oh, you know, man, I've been listening to some, uh, like, German dance music. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's a little bit of that going yeah, on. I think yeah. it was a little, it was a little bit wanky, but yeah. but yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you just said to me before we started recording, your what one thing that's interesting to me about you is people that get into a particular era or genre of metal can get very fixed in just that. But you said you know you go from like poison to napalm death and back. Absolutely, and, and right across the spectrum, and then obviously the classic rock that informs metal. All the sort of some people would say Sabbath and Zeppelin and that aren't metal, but they're they're antecedents. They're yeah. part part of how it was created. You're into basically all of it. Yeah. Um, there must be some metal bands you don't like. Um. Or, yeah. I, I just. I don't want to be that guy. I remember. When I'm not. I was, I'm not expecting you to name any or shit on no. anyone. I'm just saying there must be. You must hear. I'm interested to know how your ears work with metal. Like, do you? You know, there must be something that it doesn't do it for you. I I think I'm at the stage now where music has to sound real to me, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. This whole pro tooled perfection mm. plugins, whatever you want, all that stuff. To me, yeah, it's perfect and it sounds amazing, but. Is it real? Mm. Like, when I listen to a modern metal album, am I actually listening to the drummer that played those tracks? Probably not. So what about <laughs> things like, uh, you know, like when Fear Factory would do that kind of crossover techno metal, you know, that sort of late 90s? I thought it was, it was really exciting. I was At I, the time. At the time. Yeah. I mean, when D-Manufacture came out, which yeah. I think is their yeah. second album, I mean, that album still, I listened mm. to it not long ago, it still stands up. Mm-hmm. But I guess... Yeah, but I could imagine, I could see, I haven't gone back to that stuff, but I loved it at the time, but I right. imagine that's probably quite dated. But but 
only quite dated in as much as the pure dance music from that time is too. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I think this thing with a lot of metal, modern metal and what the... Uh, I remember when I got into, was young and I got into, I was like, I never want to be that 40 year old dude that only listens to Saxon. Thinks, mm. thinks anything after mm. that is just yeah, yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. But my problem with, not my problem, but what I, what I hear when I listen to young people's metal these days is there's less emphasis on songwriting, more emphasis on chops mm. and almost overplaying. Like, I don't know. The, some of the modern extreme metal stuff, I mean, the drumming is just ridiculous. It's, yeah. I, I kind of put it in comparison to the evolution of skateboarding. If you look back at the 80s skateboard tricks, which were mm. amazing then, but you see how far that's advanced now. It's just unbelievable. And back then there was probably 50 skaters in the world who are amazing. Now there's about 50,000 skaters. Mm-hmm. It's the same with, heavy metal, with um, extreme metal drumming. It's become so technical and it's become like a method rather than a feel. Or rather yes, than a style, yeah, and yeah. and people like my favorite drummers are people that un- that underplay, that don't ruin the song by trying to put as many fills as they mm. can, and like Phil Rudd or mm, like mm. Um, Lars Ulrich, mm, mm. the guy cops more shit than anyone yeah, else. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Who else in the world sounds like him? Can yeah. you name one other drummer that sounds like him? No, I think he's kind of. Um He's kind of like a heavy metal Charlie Watts or Ringo Starr or someone, yeah, isn't he? And he's that, got his and own that he's style. He's got his own thing, and and yes, and you know, yes, because those are guys that people sort of think aren't that great. And yeah. Then, and then you talk to people who actually listen to them and go, "Fuck, they're great." They're, look, look at the songwriting involved. Look at the mm. not just with Lars. It's also the vision of the band. That to me, that's a big part of being in a band. Anyone can sit in their room and learn how to play two hundred BPMs mm. blast beats or whatever. I mean, but. Who can actually go out and and start a band and try and do something a little bit different and think outside the box and play, try and play great gigs and make it exciting with great looking gig posters and all these kinds of skills and that's that's why Metallica is still head and shoulders above everyone else. You know a guy I reckon maybe he does get his due but and I don't know because I'm not as um, understanding of, of, of the sort of metal scene, but I reckon a really formative, innovative, amazing player is Deep Purple's Ian Pace. Oh my know? god, he's I, th- I, I know Deep Purple fans <laughs> obviously love him, but I wonder how he rates with drummers. I think he's amazing. Well, everyone goes on about um, Bottom, obviously, yeah, yeah, great yeah, drummer, yeah. and everyone goes on about Bill Ward, but give me Ian Pace over those two guys right. any day. Really? Just yeah. swing and feel. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, I love his jazziness. Like yeah. he's got major sort of jazzy chops. And I mean, Bill Ward had that a bit. Yeah, but and and Bonham could swing, yeah. but not like Ian Pace does. Yeah. Listen to some of the drumming on those. Early, mm. Listen to listen to Made in Japan mm. live album. Oh, even when they were like kind of this weird beat combo, you know, in the the early sixties, like that song yeah. "One More Rainy Day" and stuff oh, like yeah. that. There's some amazing stuff. Yeah, happening there. Yeah, so you're into that sort of stuff, but you must have some admiration for some of the great choppy players that are I do but I guess the the, the great players now it's less reliant on actually being able to hit the drums like mm. a Dave Lombardo mm. he still smashes the fuck out of the yeah, drums yeah. these modern guys with triggers and all this kind of stuff it's it's, a, it's become a lot more method and so who's that guy from um, Me Sugar 
Oh yeah, um, whatever his is name it is. Thomas, is. Is it Thomas Hart? Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. So you know, the oh, people like that. Great. I mean, obviously amazing, but yeah, it doesn't speak just to me. Bores me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Years, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. It's quite good. <laughs> I to don't hear, hear a song. It's quite good to hear you say that, uh, <laughs> given that you play in that in that realm, you know, and yeah. and, and and listen widely in that realm because that that's been my thing with players like that. I'm like, it's obviously great. Yeah, but, but it doesn't just, mean anything. It's just wankery. Mm, Where's mm. the song? Mm. Mm. And it's overplaying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look, I get, I get why people love it, and it's it, it is it's its own thing, and it's it's very clever. But there's just I just don't get I just don't get any feeling off it, which is mm. what I need when I mm. listen to music. It needs to hit me here. So drums came easy to you, or you had no. to work really, really hard at no, it? No, no. Look, um, I would never certainly rate myself as a um, you know a drum aficionado. I just the the thing that I enjoy about playing the drums is is working with the band and write songwriting. That's mm. that's all I care about when we're putting our songs together. It's not how many fills I can do or anything like that. It's how best can I serve the riff, mm. all right? To to let the the guitar riff and the um, vocal mm. really shine through because that's what. When we listen to music, that's the, that's the hook, right? Mm-mm. Is the vocal melody or the guitar melody? There's very few songs where we listen to it, and it's the drum melody or whatever that is the hook. Mm. So I'm interested. Like, I mean, I I know you now. We've met a few times in real life. We've before that we've corresponded a bit on Facebook. Been aware of each other. I've listened to your music, um, but you know, I'm sitting in your family home, and you have a job. <laughs> And you have your toys that you've collected and that you continue to collect, um, and your and your and your passions and your obsessions. But but take me back to sort of when you're in Wellington and what you started talking about. You know, chewing through rehearsal space, gathering money to drink beers, not having a job. How long does that last before, <laughs> you know, fill in the void for me between, you know, yeah. how, how long are you a delinquent or, uh, well, or, or are you really a delinquent? No. You know, how long are you I've, I, in that space? I, I guess it's still in me. Some mm. of my friends haven't managed to move on. Mm. A couple, one of my friends in particular isn't on earth anymore because he wasn't able to move on. Mm. So yeah, look, the party, the party does finish. Mm. Um, I guess it was kind of all the way through our 20s, we, we just kind of lived that lifestyle, mm. which was partying, um, listening to lots of music, going to as many shows as we could. Mm. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, it's the mm. best education I've yeah, yeah. The amount of amazing bands that I have seen in that in that kind of period. And yeah, here we are now in, in my late 40s, and you know, sometimes I struggle to get out of the house to go see a band. Whereas mm. when I was in my 20s and 30s, there was never an issue, because before I had kids and so on. Mm-mm. So yeah, I mean that lasted I guess until our 30s and then um, yeah, it's time to kind of earn some money. Mm. So um, I kind of, um, I guess I, I, like I said earlier, I was a, I swam competitively when I was a kid mm. to kind of a national level. Like I was okay, I was never probably big enough or tall enough to compete with the real mm. big units. Mm-mm. And then I ended up um, doing exercise science at Polytech Still, still very much um, living that lifestyle of drinking far too much and so on. So I did that, and then I just kind of fell into started doing some part time swim instructing at. Um, do you remember Boys and Girls Institute? Mm-hmm. So I, I worked there for about probably five years, 
and then um, this kind of opportunity came up in Karori and that was maybe 15 years ago and um, there was an opportunity to come up here and kind of take over the club which was this kind of small club but I looked at the looked up here and it's as you know it's a huge suburb mm. there's a school right next to the pool with like a thousand it's a massive school mm, thousand mm, kids so mm. it was like well I could think I can come in here and get something going so I kind of came up here and it's been pretty successful mm. Yeah. Mm. So that's the day job. That's the day job, and, and the, so that keeps you going. And then you've you've constantly kept playing music, pretty much. Or no, there was probably a period there, like when I first came over to Wellington. Um, actually, um, Mark from Head Like a Hole, mm-hmm. Hitty, mm. me, him, and my friend Sam, and another guy, Lindsay. We formed a band called Demoniac, which was a black metal band. So that kind of went for a few years, and I ended up. I was kind of a little bit all over the place. I ended up going back to Marston for a little bit. So they kind of carried on without me. That was probably mid-90s that I kind of slipped away from it for a little bit. Still very much interested mm. and going to a lot of shows and listening to music, but I'd probably stopped playing at drums for a decade. Mm. My uh, they, they carried on. There's quite an interesting story. They ended up going over to the UK. Uh, Mark Hitty didn't. He stayed mm. here. Mm. And that band, Demoniac, uh, morphed into Dragon Force, who mm. are... Kind of a still, I yeah, know, yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, cheesy kind of power yeah, yeah. metal yeah, band, yeah. still going yeah. strong. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's been quite interesting. Um, seeing you know one of my close friends kind of manage to kind of make a go of it, and yeah, uh, that's his, his job and his yeah. career. Is yeah, the traveling the world. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so, what brings you back to it? Like, just um, I, my my wife Jeannie, when we got together, she kind of started encouraging me, like, why don't we get some drums again? And I was a little bit hesitant. Um, yeah, so yeah, and I ended up buying a kit. I bought a Pearl Export, I think, mm. was my first kind of kit back into it. And just started... How rusty were you? Uh, very. Yeah. <laughs> very. Yeah. Like, yeah. And um, just had it set up in our spare room, so couldn't really smash them too loud. Mm, Neighbours weren't mm, too impressed. Mm. And um, I think... Rock Shop used to have a musicians wanted kind of mm. thing on their website. Mm-hmm. So I looked on there and I ended up um, hooking up with a guy who played guitar and we just kind of started playing at my house. It was a little project we had called Red Dawn. That was my first kind of project back and we got a couple of other guys on board. That went for about three or four years. We mm. did, ended up doing some good shows. Like we played with like Skid Row and Ugly Kid Joe mm. and mm. Hunt, supported a bunch of good bands. Did a mm. couple of really cool EPs. And then... Um, I always wanted to play something a little bit more more extreme, a little bit more metal. So um, I knew um, Ross, who's the bullet belt guitarist, he lived in Karori. So mm. one day I just texted him out of the blue. We hadn't really hung out for a few years. And I was like, hey, man, um, do you, he's a drummer too. I was, I was just going to say, it was two drummers that yeah. formed bullet belt. He's, right? he's a drummer. Yeah. And I was like, hey, yeah. man, because um, I, I thought he had a guitar. I was like, mm. do you have a guitar? So like, yeah, I said, do you want to... <laughs> Do you want to play it? Yeah, do you want to do something? <laughs> yeah. So we just started. He came. He's like, yeah, sure. So he came over a little, um, little practice amp mm. in my. Um, I'd actually bought that electronic kit. Like, mm. Mm. So I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to practice in the lounge at home without pissing off yeah. everyone. Yeah. So I bought out a little electronic kit and we just started at my old house, just two piece. Started just playing and we kind of got a few songs together and then we, um, another guy, um, our original singer. Bass player, um, he was I think the same, the rock shop classified. Mm, mm. He kind of came on board, mm. and then three piece, and we just kind of, it just started evolving. And then um, my other band, Red Dawn, had a show, and I was like, well, should we play the show as well? 
So we'd only done about 10 kind mm. of practices, so that mm. was our first first show there um, probably over 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think it's the first album comes out about 2009 or 10. Oh, we, did, we did an EP. You did an EP We did an that. EP. Um, yeah. Uh, the Black Army Stands was really interesting. Um, my wife went into labour with um, Scarlett. Mm. So... I was at the studio setting setting up the yeah, drums, yeah. and she goes into labour. Yeah. So I'm like, fuck. We had it booked. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> drums were set up. I rushed to the hospital. Um, luckily, um, everything's good. So she has, had to have a cesarean. So I hang out there. Baby comes out. Baby's all good. I've been up since I've done all-nighter. Mm, Baby's, mm, mm. I, can't, I think Scarlett was born in the, at 5 o'clock in the morning. Mm. So I hung out for him for about three or four hours, and I was like, you qualify. <laughs> Just like, pop yeah, up. <laughs> go for it. So I went back to the studio and played the drums on those four songs the same mm. day that my daughter was born wow. after doing an all-nighter. So yeah. it's kind of a cool little story there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So that was too feeling that, feeling that new dad elation yeah. and exhaustion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. Um, and so, I mean, this band has... You haven't exactly flooded the market with loads and loads of material, but... This is a constant, this band. You, this band's still going. You're working on what you're going to do an album later this year or next year? We're going to do an album later this year, yeah, mm. which will be album number four. Yeah, we're mm. always. Um, but you're just plugging away. Yep. It's there. It's. We're under no illusion that this is going to become a full time mm-hmm. gig. Mm. We've worked hard for 10 years to get the band to a point now where we can. It's almost self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. We're very DIY. We, we put our own album releases out ourselves, so mm. we have full control over everything. And we've managed to pay the bills back with those. Mm. We've done three vinyl releases. Mm. Um, we've toured Australia maybe five or six times and managed to pay the bills. We've toured Japan, managed to pay the bills. So we're kind of always... Um, we're busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always something on the go, and it's just... Um, yeah, no, the band's a, is a, a constant in all of your lives. It's the, yeah. a thing you do. It's not your job, but it's like your second job. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I probably myself particularly, the other mm. guys would probably agree with this, it's kind of, I guess, my baby. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's very much, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. here. And I kind of, um, I guess struggle sometimes to forget about the band and just kind of you know I'm always kind of thinking about what we're going to do next and how we're going to do it and we've had some trials and tribulations along the way there's mm. been some been some some pretty heavy things come our way and we've kind of always worked through them and and kind of I mean, I mean Ross and I sat there probably five years ago and we're having beers down in my man cave which you've mm. seen and, mm. and I said to him I would like I want I want this band to still be going 20 years you know I want to be 60, mm, I want mm. to be 17, still doing mm. this, why not? Mm. Yeah. Um, tell me about the the kind of this self-sufficient DIY thing. Tell me how that's come to be. Like, uh, how, who thought that up and how have you created that model and how does that model work? It obviously works very well. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of work. Luckily in our band, anyone in a band will know if there's only one doer, things yeah. can be pretty slow going. Yeah, yeah. Because you end up having to drag three mm. or four people around. Mm-hmm. Um, Ross and I are both doers in our band, and the other guys are great too. Like they'll, they certainly help out a lot. But because there's two of us who are quite, I mean, as you know, with musicians, they can be mm. not the most organised people on earth. Mm-hmm. So we're we're actually reasonably um, organised people by nature. 
So we've kind of managed to say, well, let's just kind of make this our baby and, and be the managers of it and keep control. I mean, we've had discussions with labels and stuff to release stuff, but, it, you know, they're not big labels. Mm-mm. And we've kind of felt that we can do just as good a job as they could do for us yeah, ourselves just by um, being smart and learning as we go. And a lot of it is networking, like um, for us to self-release – there's a little bit of money needed up front. Luckily, Ross and I mm. have jobs and some mm. money, mm. which we can put back in that. We know it's going to come back at some stage. But it's also about being smart enough to have good distribution, like distribution in the States or in Europe or whatever, mm. it, making those connections and keeping that. That's really, I guess, the most important thing is, is it's the people skills mm. and meeting people and talking to people and making these connections so everyone can kind of help each other out mm. to get the desired effect. Because there's a, a kind of, um, where I wanted to go with that is, there's a kind of entitlement to a lot of people making music in New Zealand now that someone should support them. Funding will come. Or, uh, you know, and, and I guess the style of music you're making is, it's one of the kind of... Um, last bastions of music snobbery by you know and, and being marginalized by you have you have on the one hand the best part of it is you have usually devoted fans that will buy into things like crowdfunding and stuff which is great yeah but i imagine it's a hard i mean did you have you ever written an application to creative new zealand or one of those and gone you know Fingers crossed, and then just had it laughed out of the we, room. We got, um, we we did the when we did that theme song for Deathgasm. The mm, movie, mm. We got eight, I think eight or ten thousand dollars to film a video from mm. that. Obviously, the movie connection helped a lot there. Yeah, yeah. But we haven't received a great deal since then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess. Um, yeah. But how cool was Deathgasm? Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a bit. I mean, yeah, that's it was a great film. That was cool. Really, really cool. fun. Yeah, yeah, like um, really like you know like the kind of like we talked about before those. Those horror movies we well, used to watch. It must have been a dream for you to be involved in that. It was on, actually on the level that you were. It was actually that. interesting because um, I don't know if do you know Jason? No. He'd be another great person yeah, to yeah, talk okay. to. He's local. Yeah. Cool. So he he contacted this was way before the movie was made. He won a competition which was called Make That's, My Oh yeah, yeah. Make I'm My Horror that. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was the Ant Timpson who yeah, was kind yeah, of yeah. involved. So just from our Facebook page, we got like a generic message from him mm. just saying, hey, um, and it just had the poster of the, um, you know, Mm-mm. and it was like, hey, um, I've won this competition to make this movie. Um, uh, have, c- can you guys help with like props? Have you got T-shirts or posters or anything you can throw at us? And um, I f- replied to him straight away and it worked out he, was, he worked for Weta, who's living mm. in Wellington. Mm. So we met up for coffee. And um, we um, hit it off straight away because he was the same as me, heavy metal obsessism. Yeah, yeah, horror films. Horror, horror yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting. He said he contacted maybe 50 or 60 metal bands in New Zealand. Wow. And I think like two two replied. Wow. So I was just kind of, I saw it as a great opportunity. Mm. So I've, I kind of jumped all over it. And mm. and we um, and we kind of talked and agreed that we would um, write the write a song. Still before the movie was made, I remember he um, he actually sent me um, the script mm. to read, so I could kind of get an idea of you know lyrics and how we were gonna, what what the song was kind of going to be about. So we kind of wrote the song before the movie was even out, and then um, yeah, it just kind of kind of took off, didn't it? Mm. Mm. So uh, yeah, great for him, and he's um, 
He's just made a movie um, coming out soon with Daniel Radcliffe. Oh yeah, called yeah. Uh, Guns Akimbo, which which is going to be a like you know, mm. million dollar, mm. so many million dollar budget. Mm. But I think uh, Deathgasm is like a hundred thousand dollar budget or something ridiculous, mm. like nothing. Mm. Mm. Smell of an oily rag. Yeah, so yeah, a fucking great job. And what um, that must have brought you? I mean, you uh, great. Um, synergies there, like some of your existing audience goes to Deathgasm, but the film must have brought you some yeah, audience in return. Absolutely, and, and more internationally. Yeah, if you, yeah. If you jump on YouTube, and yeah. I mean, the video, I don't know how many views it's had now, but most of the people checking out are like Brazilians mm, and all these mm. kinds of. Yeah, so mm. we, yeah, we, we certainly have made, you know, have got good mileage out of it, absolutely. Mm, mm, mm. And, you know, for me, um, it was such. It was so great because I love metal horror soundtracks. Mm, mm. Like, um, trick, do you know the Trick or Treat movie? Yes, yeah, yeah. Sammy yeah. Kerr? Yeah. There he is there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was like um, uh, Friday the 13th. Uh, sorry, um, Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors yeah, with yeah, Dokken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this really amazing history. And Actually, what, we were talking about Dokken before. That's where I would have heard them, actually. Yeah. Because, yeah, no, I love those those movies. That's That's probably my favourite horror franchise Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, yeah I had all, all those soundtrack albums and posters and yeah it was really cool um, I think about a year ago Metal Hammer which is probably the biggest metal publication yeah. in the world they yeah. still do a, a hard copy they um, had an article and it had like the 20 best metal horror soundtracks and we had, they had us at like number 6 and mm. ahead of Docker and I was like fuck mm, off you know mm, come on mm. whatever Anyway, you take it. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. all these great bands behind us. And yeah. So, oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So yeah, no, that's a that's a highlight in the band story. Yeah, look, so we we we're just Ross and myself in particular are just huge metal fans. Mm. Like we, we we our band we're we're playing in Bullet Belt and and making Bullet Belt. Um, Working hard on Bullet Belt just because we're music fans ourselves. Mm, mm. So I derailed that because I wanted to hear about the film, but we were talking specifically about, yeah, the sort of DIY approach and, and, and how you've managed to tour places outside of New Zealand and make vinyl releases. So you guys put, you guys obviously have to front some money. Yep. Um, and then you run it. It's a business. You run it yep. and you when you break even... On a project that's a success, basically. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it, look, it can take time. We get, yeah. you know, if we press 500 albums, it might take a year until we pay ourselves back. Mm-hmm. Um, international, like, there's only so many albums you're going to sell in New Zealand, mm-hmm. right? There's only mm-hmm. so many people into. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're not making, yeah, you're not making music for everyone. You're making it for a specific fan base. Yeah, and, and I mean, and if we don't, we, we have some. Good distros around the world that we, we what we do with them is we trade. Mm, so we'll mm. trade twenty bullet belt albums with whatever. So we have which Ross really runs the way it works. We have our own distro which is called Headless Horseman. Mm, mm. So it's probably got about three hundred titles in it at the moment, and um, we ha- and a lot of it's internet sales, but also every show we we set up this big distro. So so we would trade maybe twenty bullet belt albums with mm. a distro and. In the UK, and they'll send us 20 albums, which will be all artists that... Adjacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then we sell those in our distro, and that's how we kind of mm, make the money back mm, internationally. Mm. So you're putting on shows. It's like a little... Um, 
mini fair or comic con or yeah. whatever in terms of the merchandise stand you're bringing you're introducing people to other music or your um you know sharing taste with people and yeah yeah it's um yeah there's some nights where it's slow going yeah and there's some shows where you'll sell a shitload but our latest album we just put out Nine Centuries which mm. just came out on vinyl we haven't actually played live yet so that's actually when we sell the most records yeah, at a show yeah of course if we can sell 10 records a night the great thing that's happened with vinyl in that s- scenario is it's it's a souvenir you know people get you to scribble on it or whatever yeah, exactly. or photograph of them holding it with, or even just going and buying it but it's a it's, it's a tangible take home souvenir yeah from an experience yeah absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you've also as part of that that sort of um, district thing you've also become event promoters you do others you've brought people yeah. to. now is that all sort of it, it sounds like a master plan that you sat down and devised this but I'm guessing it's just um, a lot of it is just some <laughs> fucking random idea that I get in my head when I'm going out for a run in that yeah. bush right behind you there. yeah and then I'll just try to push it with Ross and say, yeah, yeah, let's do this. So we've bought, we've bought um, kind of underground bands, but bands from the States over. We've bought Toxic Holocaust over, um, a band called Midnight. Mm. Look, I, I would never want to be a promoter in a million years. What mm. a shitty fucking mm. job. Who would, mm. who would ever want to be a promoter? How stressful. We bring bands over that are a little bit smaller where the overheads are low. So if there is a loss, it's not huge. And bands we like. Mm. I figure if we're bringing someone in that I actually like, we're going to go that extra mile to to promote it and make sure that you know people are coming along to the show because I believe that the bands we're bringing in are fucking great bands and people should mm. come and see them. And it's really really tough. I mean, I talked before about going to see um, Shehard and Headlight like mm. Hole in the nineties and you know four, three, four, five hundred people. It's really tough these days. I mean. Even 10 years ago, 100 people to a metal show on a Friday or Saturday on our local show was a really good night. Mm, mm. I would say 50 mm. is the new 100. Yeah, and yeah. And it's almost getting to the stage for some local bands, 30 is the new 100. Yeah, yeah. It's really tough. It's really tough to pay the bills because mm. not just as a promoter like us bringing bands over, but even if you're putting on your own show, you've got to pay the sound guy. First and foremost, off the door, you've got to pay, um, you know, there's costs of paying a little bit to the other bands and so on. So even just putting on your local band's own show on a Friday and Saturday night, there's a very high likelihood you're playing to lose some money. Plus we've turned it, yeah, well we've turned it, apart from this whole competition for entertainment dollar and that people can sit at home with Netflix and watch a documentary or a concert film or, you know, or whatever, we've also turned ourselves into these worker drones where... We can sit. We can sit in front of the screen at home and stream whatever we want, and be on our phone telling people we're doing it. Yeah. And sharing other, looking at other things, and that's you can't do that at a gig, and you shouldn't do that at a gig, and you would, you know, you don't pay money to go and be told by someone else put your phone away. So you might as well just sit, you know. Yeah. You might as well just sit at home and do it. So there's this kind of apathy that's crept in as well it's right? really sad I mean look you know as much as I do there is nothing as special as seeing a, a great mm. live band mm. it's, it's the greatest and young people nowadays I've heard people seen people comment on social media before um, 
I don't need to go to that show. I've watched them on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. On their phone too, like <laughs> on a tiny little screen. They just don't know what they're missing out <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, People yeah. just need to go to the show, put their phone down, get up the front, get yeah. right stuck into it and experience mm. it because, man, it's, there's just nothing like great live music. Mm, mm. And you still get that buzz as an audience member yourself? Very much so. I mean, I've seen some shows this year. Like I said before, I saw Slayer and... Anthrax and Judas Priest, a triple header up in Auckland, but just mm. going um, at our local haunt, Valhalla, mm. um, Ben, the promoter there, the owner, he's he's been bringing so many great international bands through. I saw, seen some great shows this year. I saw a band called Deaf Heaven, who are from the States, and front row, like literally front row, just... Mm. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I get just as much buzz out of seeing a live band or listening to an album at 48 as I did when I was 15. Mm. I still get the same feeling. Mm, mm. Now, you, um, I normally don't comment on people's appearance at all, but you are probably the most inked person that I have met in real life. <laughs> so when did that start? Obviously, it fits with, I mean, it's, you know, you collect toys, records, books, you're into horror films and heavy metal. It is not a shock to me or anyone listening that, that you might have a tattoo or two. Yeah. But um, when did it start and when did you lose count? <laughs> um, I started really young, probably when I was like 16. I got a couple. Um, and then it stopped for a while, maybe for 10 or 15 years. Um, as I said, during my partying phase mm, there mm. wasn't any money to spend on no 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 I'd rather buy a dozen beers yeah 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 you know, of course that yeah, was yeah. the attitude sadly yeah or a mars bar once a month <laughs> so that you had some solid food yeah, yeah exactly yeah, no, i know <laughs> so and then um i guess it was maybe 15 years ago i just started getting interested and in, i've always been interested it's like like you said I, i'm quite an obsessive person in collecting mm, mm. as you've seen and i just have always been really interested in how tattoos look. and i guess guess 15 years ago Kind of like I talked about with skateboarding or extreme metal drumming, the standard of tattooing in the past 20 years has just fucking gone through the roof. Like, mm. It, mm. even you as a casual observer, I know mm. you might have noticed mm. the standard oh, of sure. It's just out of this world. And yeah. I kind of started to see some of the cool shit that um, tattoos could do now. So well, it's been it. legitimized as an art form, yeah. I think, too. Like, you know, maybe a little bit before that, but yeah. certainly it's fully legitimised. I mean, I don't have a tattoo, um, but I'm really interested in them. I think tattoos are cool. I I, I can, you know, follow people on Instagram yep. that, that either um, do tap, that are tattoo artists or that um, just have heaps. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like it's, it is. It is. Yeah. I like everything about it. I like, yeah. um, I, like um, I love getting tattooed. I like the whole, whole process. I think I've been tattooed by almost 40 people, 40 wow. different tattooers. So I, I like, part, the big part of the tattoo experience for me is is going into a new studio that I don't know and being in a different place and getting tattooed by someone new and I like the smell of it and I like the feel of mm. the tattoo. And I just like everything about it. The whole the whole process to me is really interesting. And I really, um, it's really important to me that I kind of have a bit of a connection, I guess, with the tattooist. Mm -hmm. A lot of my tattoos have been done by people who have, you know, some of my tattoos have been done by people who are just apprentices. But because mm. I've connected with them on a, maybe a musical level or mm. a movie mm. level or what mm. it is, then I'm very happy to, to give them mm. a chance, you know, to tattoo on me. Mm, yeah. Mm, mm. So it's just kind of, I, I guess I click. I'm at the stage now where. You're running out of room. Well, I kind of am, and I, I mean, look, I'm getting tattoos on top of tattoos. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah, yeah. You know, but I, um, 
Yeah, I just, I just, I guess I just stop caring what people think. Yeah. There's, there's, when you start getting heavily tattooed and there were points where, it, where I got my hands tattooed and I'm like fucking freaking out the night before. It's like, fuck it, you know, am I going, taking this too far? Mm. And when I got my throat tattooed, I remember the night before I got my throat tattooed, I was shitting myself. I was just, you know, fuck, what are you doing, you know? But once you go through that step now, it's just like, you know, I'm just ha- comfortable in my own skin and people can, you know, it's, I guess it's quite funny where I work in Karoi, which is quite a uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a reasonably posh yeah. suburb, and I yeah. work at the local swimming pool teaching all the all the yeah. local Karoi parents' kids to swim. But um, And there's maybe been a few odd looks, but, um, yeah. Most I, of the parents are just looking at their phone, though, right? While yeah, I guess while, so. you, while, while you're entrusted <laughs> with their kid's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty a, much. <laughs> so you're safe there, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Tell me about how the songs come about for Bullet Belt. Um, the song how, how do they get written? Who writes? Um, how collaborative is it's it? It's very collaborative. Um, it'll come with an idea, like it'll be a feel. It might be a, it might be a, hey Ross, the feel of this Judas Priest song. Let's we need to mm. write something like that. This kind of driving drum beat or or whatever it is. And and Ross or um, Josh, our guitarist, will will come up for riff. And then um, the part that I play that I really enjoy is the structure, putting the song together and mm. and and making it cohesive. Because um, sometimes, particularly with guitarists, it can become riff soup. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and 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 almost in the opposite direction, it can become. Um, particularly when there's no vocals on in the early songwriting period, it can be a little bit of oh, fuck. That's just boring. That just bit, bit's too repetitive. Well, it's actually not because we're writing a chorus hook, and mm. we need to remember there's going to be a vocal hook on top of it and a nice bass line underneath it. You know, we go back to classic songwriting, mm. the Deep Purples and the Sabbaths. Mm. Uh, it's 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 structured songwriting. Yeah, mostly. yeah. There's movement. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess a, a little bit of that is where I come in and try to kind of convince the guitarist sometimes that we need do need to repeat this bit a little bit more. Rather than mm. just changing riffs every yeah, yeah. fifteen seconds, yeah, yeah, or yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. So um, yeah, and and it just kind of um, the embryo just grows. Some songs will get written in one practice. Some songs will take four months, mm, mm. and it's just kind of yeah. It, and um, it's a it's a really collaborative effort. Tim, our bass player, he's really creative, and he he adds a lot to the songs because his bass kind of runs all. Mm. Or through mm. it, you might have seen mm. him on that documentary. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, slowing him down a little bit is half the challenge, <laughs> which is a good, like I said, yeah, a yeah. good problem to have. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, new album is in very embryonic stage. You're really just thinking about it at this point. No, we've or got nine. Got we've got nine songs, and they are really songs. Like right. What, if I if I look back to the first couple of albums, I listen listen to them occasionally. I'm like, fuck, what were we thinking? Or you know, I'm sure mm. every musician does that, or everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a band, but I think the the thing with the next batch of songs is very songs, very mm-hmm. songy, mm, mm. very um like. That's all right. <laughs> uh, repeated, you know, repetitive bits and making sure that the what we're trying to do is right, big big hooks. So we still want to be an extreme metal band, but we're not trying to be the baddest, fastest metal band because yeah. we're never going to be that. Yeah, there's yeah. tons of bands around yeah. doing shit that we could never do. Yeah. In New Zealand, there's so many great extreme metal bands. We're kind of moving a little bit away from that, I guess, and we're trying to um, just write great songs like 
ACDC. You're going into like, your killing joke phase. <laughs> yeah, or like Def Leppard. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like one of your favourite bands. Yeah. It's, it's just great songs. So, yeah. um, and I'm spending a lot of time with our new vocalist, and we're really focusing on the um, the vocal lines and the vocal hooks. Mm. It's going to be really important. And I mean, you sort of talked about how many bands there are in New Zealand doing like extreme and just and or just metal in general, but it's a pretty good scene, right? Like it's a subculture. So like uh, maybe a lot of people listening to this um, have an idea of metal and haven't explored it further than that. But um, uh, I don't know what the riches and rewards are, but I imagine mostly it's just um, finding a stage to play on and finding an audience to to perform to. But um, there's a good range of of stuff going on, right? It's probably the strongest it's ever been, to mm. be honest, mm. since um, I've been around. I mean, there's a lot of bands in the real dark underground here mm. who are very respected internationally. Mm. Bands like Diocletian and Heresiarch and these bands that play this very, like, you know, you probably first listened to us and thought it was mm. a bit of a big fucking horrible noise. Where If you listen to that stuff, it's even more... So I've had a kind of extreme sound, which is mm. what they're kind of trying to sound like. So there's that whole style. And then there's obviously, um, you know, there's bands like Alien Weaponry all of a yeah, sudden. Yeah, they're yeah, playing yeah. good on them, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Not everyone's cup of tea, but all of a sudden they're playing some big stages and some big yeah. festivals around yeah. the world. And yeah, and yeah I, I just I think um, it's probably in the best shape it's been. And I, the only thing that slightly concerns me is just locally there's n- – in Wellington at the moment there doesn't seem to be a lot of young bands right coming yeah, through there's yeah. not a lot of 16 and 17 and 18 year olds that I see starting bands mm. there is a little bit more in the, there's a very good um, kind of underground punk scene here and there's a lot of good bands in Wellington doing that but mm. more in the kind of metal side of things I don't know what these kids are doing maybe they're playing with their playstations or watching YouTube or whatever mm. but they're certainly not forming bands mm. which is a little bit of a concern yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um it's, but, you know, it's interesting what you were saying about, you know, if I first heard your band or any band and, and, and you have this first reaction, it's a little bit around how you frame it, right? Like, um, you know, I was listening to a Japanese noise artist this morning and I'm convinced it's heavy, it's not heavy metal, but I'm convinced it's heavier than any heavy music I've ever heard. And if you... so. I remember, and you know, I was talking to you before we started recording about how I used to devour guitar world when I was a teenager. And one of the coolest things I remember reading in there was an interview with Jeff Beck, where he said, "I've heard the blues played heavier than heavy, any heavy metal. Yeah, um, I've heard jazz, you know, speak to me on a level that's heavier than any heavy. Me- and he wasn't dissing metal; he was yes. just he was talking about, you know, <clears throat> there's a heaviness in these other styles of music." And so, if you're aware of those, you can you can like I'm a I'm a lapsed metal fan. I'm a yep. I'm a fair weather metal fan. I've got my favourites, and yep. I every now and then I'll jump into something and go, wow, you know, that's great, and it maybe doesn't fit yep. my standard sort of set of listening experiences. But I bring to it a lot of um, not just knowledge of listening to music constantly but yeah like a lot of noise and improv music that is fucking odd to listen to yeah and, and heavy unsettling yeah yeah and free jazz you know yeah and like and and um yeah yeah unsettling is the word it's yeah. like watching um some of those what's that movie called in the small town and they're going around killing cats oh 
Gosh. Fuck, I'll remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Very unsettling. <laughs> so, yeah. It's like I talked before about modern extreme metal. Mm. I mean, how extreme is it to sound exactly the same as a thousand other bands? Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. saying once <laughs> to someone, Striper are the most extreme band in the world. How many people are they pissing off? Yeah. Look at all the, you know, the satanic. Well, metal, I th- metal guys who hate that, or look at Poison dressed up like bloody girls. That yeah. to me is more extreme yeah, than yeah. than thirty bands all wearing the same black t-shirt playing the exact same fucking shit. Well, you know? see, when I in the early <laughs> in the early two thousands when I started reviewing CDs for the newspaper, I would get all the stuff that no one wanted. So I would get all the hip hop and all the fringe hip hop and all the uh, new metal, which was big then. And then anything else that was sort of noisy. And I got very sick of death metal because of the kind of um, cookie cutter, cookie monster. I remember voice. you reviewed Trivium one time. Oh, yeah. I remember reading that. <laughs> okay. And you didn't give it a very good review. Right. It's fine. I, yeah. agree, I agree with what yeah. you said. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's kind but of. But that, that, that was where <laughs> I kind of, I think for a while, I just, yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't make the distinction in this stuff. It started to sound very samey to me. It, it's, it's, one, it's interesting, though. What, what was the process for that album to get to you? You know what I mean? What, mm, mm. Who was sending you that album and what? Yeah, I don't know. You know were you, you know. getting the good stuff? Yeah, not always. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, certainly with the newspaper, it was just, and people probably didn't know this, it was just sort of smash and grab. Like, you went in and you got handed... Uh, back when people released CDs and sent them to be reviewed rather than just send you a code or a link, you act, I would actually walk out with a shopping bag of CDs and would just be on a, on a person's desk. Yep. And occasionally there was a, a one-sheet bio and sometimes there wasn't. Yep. And it was the fairly early days of the internet in terms of substantial information. So yep. sometimes you had no clues what it was. You, just, you either did your own research or you didn't. I mean, I loved that about it. Yeah. But... You know, yes, you would. It's churn. You're trying yeah. to rip through it and do a certain amount each week. Yeah. So you aren't listening to it the same way a devoted fan is. Yeah, and yeah. I think a devoted fan has to, well, doesn't have to understand that, but it would would be wise to. Yeah. And that there's no point in getting a devoted fan of each genre to just review that genre because then you just can get nothing but technical, boring yeah. fan review. <laughs> you know, reviews of everything. It's like. Uh, my brother used to have the Rolling Stone record guide, mm. The, mm. and he used to swear by it back in the day. And I, and I remember it gave Van Halen one like two stars. Yeah, yeah. I was like, this book is fucking shit. It's wrong. I was just like, and I used to say to him, this is just one person's fucking opinion. Mm. Mm. Who cares what this person thinks? Just put the record on and listen to it, and what it does to you, mm. and how you feel it. Mm. You know, there's your review right there. You know, mm. Mm. but. Um, Van Halen is what? Are they still the band for you? Or uh, favorite all-time band? They would they would probably be up there. Probably be Van right Halen, up there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, did you ever get to see a decent lineup of them? Or only the one I, I saw. Only saw the Gary Shrine, <laughs> and unfortunately, I decided to drink a bottle of whiskey that night. And oh, unfortunately, so I don't really remember too much of it. Yeah. I probably didn't miss out on too much. It was okay. yeah. I mean, I have a I have a reasonable memory of it, and it was okay. But it's funny. I just think. Oh, why couldn't I have seen either of the other, you know, the proper lineups? Absolutely. Because I'm, I'm, I'm okay with uh, Van Hager. You know, I love Van Hager. Yeah, I, it's you know, great. it's 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 perfectly fine, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I think I actually think um, Fifty One Fifty is, is amazing. Yeah, 
almost as good as anything that came before. It's almost it. like back, back in Black, first Brian Johnson yeah, album. Yeah, totally. Yeah, boom, yeah, holy totally. Shit. Yeah, yeah, 50 yeah. 5150, first yeah. Sammy Hagar, boom, yeah. holy shit. And almost never better to, you go back, Van Halen won number one for me. I would put 5150 in the top three, probably. It's that mm, good. Mm, mm. I suppose they had, um, apart from anything else, they had everyone's ears at that point too, right? Yeah. You know, like, and same with ACDC. They kind of got yeah. as close to having well, everyone's had, ears. Well, Jump. Yeah. Jump is the big hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was yeah. kind of poised to, and same with um, Highway to Hell. That yeah, was yeah, big that's, hit and that's then, what I mean. Like, they've got, they've got as big as they get. Yeah. And so they've got everyone's ears for the next project. So yeah. people are going to give it a chance no matter what. And then, fuck, they, in both cases, they absolutely hit it out of the park. Yeah. And uh, Sorry, Gummo. Oh, yeah, yeah. What that's an amazing the, film. That's, that's yeah, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Try and watch that and not oh, be kind of freaked out. That's, like. <laughs> that's creepy as fuck and brilliant. I love that film. Yeah. So are you still, I mean, I feel like the horror films that have come out largely in the last, 10 or 15 years and I haven't paid attention to all of them obviously but I feel like there's a bit of a worrying trend with horror films at the moment that reminds me a bit of when like new metal took over again this you know there's there's been some amazing horror films the last few years obviously that people got very excited about but I'm thinking if you look in your Netflix queue and every month you know another cheap version of some sort of stalker film with really some shitty CGI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I guess. But I, are you still actively watching a lot of no, horror I, films, I, I or check, are you are you with the classics? I checked out a little bit, kind of around mm. the Scream era. Mm. That kind of yeah, I think pretty, I did too. That shit was pretty lame. And then once the CGI, I think it's like anything. Like with like I was saying with metal, listening to metal now, I like it to sound real. I guess if you. Um, real movie aficionado and you delve outside the big industry and into the independence mm. you're still I'm sure there's still a bunch of amazing movies being made but they're just not being hand delivered to us on Netflix you kind of got to dig a little bit deeper to find the great ones and I guess mm-hmm. and I'm I'm pretty aware there's a kind of real underground um, move horror movie kind of thing where it's um, back to practical gore Mm, a lot mm. of directors have gotten away now from CGI and look we're talking about Deathgasm before mm, that was great mm, that's mm. half the beauty of it it was all mm, practical stuff mm. a little bit of CGI but sure. I guess when you got fuck all budget you're going to make it happen you know yeah, yeah 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 but it's like you know um, yeah Gummo is more horrifying than a lot of horror films because it's real like there's yeah. something in it that or in that movie it's disturbing and the disturbing aspect is I mean, fuck, that was probably... Some of what was going on in Gummo was probably going on in Masterdom when you were there and, and, and Hastings for me, you <laughs> not, know? Not like far off. That's what I mean, like some version of it, like yeah. That still, that's some it. of those people that I grew up with are still fucking there doing the same thing. Mm. And so that's why yeah. that speaks to people. That's why that's either that it's too confronting and they don't want to touch it, yeah. or it's kind of hypnotic because... You know, it's it's a version of reality being framed rather than just you know some sort of monster shit. Yeah. That uh, yeah, there's a, some great monster films, but yeah. there's fucking heaps of terrible. Well, it's ones. like we're talking before about heavy music. You mentioned about this Japanese mm. thing you're listening mm. to. It's like there, there's a, a like a, a magazine called Zero Tolerance. It's an extreme metal magazine. They still have a free CD that they give, mm. and I get that every month. I'll put that CD on, and I just fucking flick through these songs. And it's the same Pro Tool production, and it's just, you know, the same kind of roaring death metal voice in it. 
and you'll find maybe one out of 12 songs that's doing something different but then I could I could and and that's supposed to be heavy music whereas you know I could put um, Johnny Cash Hurt on mm. on my own listening to it downstairs and probably shed a few tears if I'm in the right mood you know mm-hmm. that's a, a lot heavier to me than mm. than some pro-tooled um, you know blast beat that's been done to death by 5,000 other bands now you mentioned um, you mentioned before um, you know not seeing one of the great Van Halen lineups but you've you've referenced a few things you have seen have you seen most of your kind of heroes and idols that you could that are around obviously you can't see Led Zeppelin full lineup neither could I but you've seen Ozzy you've seen you know versions of Sabbath you've seen Metallica and all of these things is there anyone you're missing anyone still on your list the one big regret for me is Motorhead right just didn't well for whatever yeah, same, reason actually. I didn't make the effort yeah. to, um, you know Taranaki obviously yeah. 2005 was the big opportunity yeah and for whatever reason, yeah, shit got in that. the way, and I thought, oh, well, I'll see them next time around, and mm. there wasn't a next time, and it never will be. So mm. probably that, and surprisingly, I'm yet to see Deep Purple. Right. Okay, you didn't see them? No. Were they here 2006? Yeah, so they might come through again. They I, might. I'm not sure I'd want they to might. see them with yeah, how Ian's sounding these days. but He was good. He was pretty good that, I think it was 2006. The show that I saw in Wellington, I met him and interviewed him on um, on TV that day on the Good Morning Show. Awesome. Yeah, and he was really cool. I mean, I wasn't expecting that to happen. I yeah. was going out for my regular little CD review segment, and um, and Sarah, the host, said to me, I, I don't know that much. Do you want to just sit on the couch and do the interview with me? Can you help? And I was like, yeah, of course, yeah. cool. Awesome. So I actually got to meet him before the show and, and do this interview with him, and he was nice, and that you know, I was already looking forward to it, but that just made an extra. Yeah, I, I had an extra connection, you know. We're when not, not assholes. Yeah, I'm going to the show. I've listened to this band my whole life, and yeah. I've met the guy. And you know, I usually try and avoid that, actually, if anything. But yeah. this worked out pretty good. But that was a good show, and he was. Yeah, I, I don't know how he'd be able to sound now, but he was good enough then. I, I would if they come through again. I'm, I'm definitely there. Yeah. Some people you just got to do that, right? No yeah. matter what. I mean, right? I saw the cult. The cult have been a big band for me since yeah. the late '80s. I mean, I got when Electric came out. That mm. was a fucking huge album for me, and um, I saw the cult two years ago at Power Station and they were fucking amazing yeah. and I was expecting the worst because yeah, yeah, I've heard yeah. live they either hit or miss yeah. he's, he's either on or he's terrible and the newer material's not great frankly like overall like the last you know it's okay yeah yeah so because I remember seeing them in like they were actually I saw them at the start of 1995 before I moved down here properly. I drove down for a weekend and saw it. I think it was a warm-up show they might have been doing the big day out. And it was fucking great. I bet. Because that was just like... Yeah. Basically that pure cult CD. Yeah. Pretty much. Like, all of that stuff. And they had that one new kind of comeback album out at the time that had some quite good songs on it. They were, they were fucking amazing. Yeah. Well, that same, same effect when I yeah. saw them, man. It was... A, it, it was I was honestly expecting the worst, but I was like, I've just got to do it because they might never come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so... What's next after the album? <laughs> what, what, what do you do? Like, what, do you plan a show? You said you still haven't really performed the last album properly, so no, we are. What are you we've do got some Australian that? shows that we're mm. doing in November, and um, actually, my promoter hat back on that we were talking about before. Mm. I'm um, I can't say who, but 
There's a couple of bands that I'm involved in bringing over in March next year, a couple mm. of American kind of famous thrash metal bands cool. from the 80s. Well, I'll, we'll put a we'll put a link to where people can yeah. check out that info. When That's it comes. hopefully announced next Thursday. Yeah, so cool. we'll be doing some shows with them, and then um, we're we're starting to look at Europe to go over there for a couple of weeks and wow. and um, try and blag us blag us onto a couple of festivals. Yeah, and then um, just put some our own shows like local shows on around that yeah yeah so that's the initial planning to that has started yeah it's pretty much how it goes we just say hey let's do this everyone says okay and we kind of work towards it we talk yeah a year a year out we'll start talking mm. about that stuff mm. yeah mm. hey well um we better wrap it up but um if there's nothing else you want to put across that i haven't asked you or no 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 thanks heaps awesome for coming out no it's cool thank you no worries.